0: How do you respond when others treat you unfairly because of your faith? How do you respond? What do you, what do, you do? How do you react when other people persecute you because you, can't, you claim allegiance to the name of Jesus? What's your reaction? What do you do when, when you receive a demotion at work or even lose your job because on the previous Sunday you were baptized into the Christian faith? How do you react how do you respond? What do you do when your son loses an opportunity for a university education because you're a believer? How do you respond? How do you react? What do you do when your house is repeatedly vandalized and your family is threatened because you hold small group at your house? How do you react? What do you do? You know, persecution is not something that's new to Christianity. It goes all the way back to Acts chapter 7. Remember the story of a guy named Stephen? who was the first martyr for the faith. All the way back in Acts 7, this guy Stephen, who's following Jesus, he loves Jesus. And what happens to him? Because of his commitment to Jesus Christ, he's killed. And if you keep reading in Acts chapter 8, something happens. This great persecution breaks out against the church that day, and believers are scattered everywhere. In fact, the only people still left in Jerusalem are the apostles. Through this act of persecution and ongoing persecution, God takes his church and literally scatters believers all over the world. How do they respond? We know church history is full of stories of men and women who have responded quite joyfully and quite courageously in the midst of persecution. There's a story of one guy, a man named Polycarp. Polycarp lived back in about the second century. He was a bishop in the church and he was a very godly man. And as Polycarp got older, he moved out of the city and he moved into this farmhouse. And it was Polycarp's desire to spend his last year's praying for believers, praying for the church. And so he spent entire days in prayer. One day as Polycarp was praying, he had this vision of his pillow, his bed pillow bursting forth in the flames. And as he has this vision, he knows what it means. His understanding is this vision means that he is going to die a martyr's death by being burned at the stake. And so he continues in prayer. One day some men show up at his house to arrest him, actually tipped off by a family member. Men come to arrest Polycarp. They find him sleeping. They wake him up, this elderly man. They wake him up out of his sleep and acknowledge to him that he is under arrest. And you know what his request is? Could I spend an hour in prayer before you take me in? And they granted him this desire. So he stands up and he prays out loud. He goes on for two hours, finally says amen, and they take Polycarp to the authorities. He's given a chance to repent. They say to Polycarp, curse Christ and you'll be set free. Just curse Jesus Christ and this can all be over with. you You know what his response is? Polycarp says, he says, 86 years have I served him, and not once has he failed me. How could I blaspheme my king who saved me? How could I? 86 years he has been faithful to me. I can't deny him. They explain to Polycarp that this means death for him. And he says, okay, that's fine. They they take Polycarp and they drag him into the arena where he's surrounded by thousands of bloodthirsty onlookers. And it's their intention to throw polycarp to the wild animals but it's late in the day and the animals have already been put away. And so they determine rather quickly that they will burn him at the stake. Remember God has already given him a vision that this is how he's going to die. So they take polycarp, they pile up wood around the stake and it's a normal custom of the day to nail the person to the stake, makes sense it keeps them in place. You know what polycarp says? He says, you you don't need to use nails because my commitment to Christ will hold me at the stake. And so they agreed. And as Polycarp stands there at the stake, they light the fire and the flames rise up. But something interesting happens. The flames refuse to touch Polycarp. They come up around him like a vaulted chamber. And as Polycarp stands in the middle looking out at his persecutors, at his executioner, Historians say that his face was filled with joy and courage. And he just stands there in the middle of this fire, looking out at everyone. And it's frustrating to the executioner who orders someone to take a dagger and stab Polycarp. They kill him there for his faith. Here's my question How do you respond with such courage and joy? And grace in the midst of persecution, how do you do it? What does it take to respond joyfully, lovingly, graciously in the midst of persecution? Today, I want to just throw out four ideas, four things associated with Christianity and persecution. And I think understanding these four things would help us to stand strong in the middle of persecution. First, there's an expectation. And I've tried to make this easy for, well, really for me to remember, but maybe for you too. There's an expectation, there's a promise, there's a posture, and there's a prayer. There's an expectation. You see, persecution is normally considered the reality within Christianity. It's in pockets of places around the world like the United States of America where persecution is abnormal. But if you go back through church history, persecution is normal. And there's always been an expectation of believers that persecution would follow their faith. Jesus says in John, I believe it's in John 15. He says, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. Jesus said it's an expectation. Persecution should be expected to be a normal part of Christianity in most circumstances. The servant is not greater than the master. Jesus says, if they persecute me, they'll also persecute you. What did they do to our master? They beat him. They hung him naked on a cross in public. He died a cruel death in front of people. Why did they hate Jesus so much? Why did they want Jesus dead? John chapter 1 says... It says that light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light. You see, when Jesus comes into the world, Jesus brings light. And this is supposed to be a positive image. This is supposed to be something positive. Jesus comes bringing hope and joy and salvation. But here's the problem. Light also exposes things. Light exposes the hearts of men. It exposes our greed our self-centeredness, our pride. It exposes things that we don't want exposed. And so light comes into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. And so the response is, then let's kill Jesus. Let's get rid of him. You know what else the Bible says? It says that you and I are the light of the world. That you and I are like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Jesus says to us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, because of Jesus inside of us, you and I are a light in darkness. And that's supposed to be positive. You and I bring hope and peace. And we're supposed to bring, be a part of bringing wholeness to what's broken with the creation. And yet that light shines on Darkness, it shines on self-centeredness and corruption. And it causes people to rise up against us. If they persecuted the master, they'll also persecute us. It's an expectation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that, that each one of us who profess faith in Jesus, that we are an aroma of Christ. That you and I give off a smell. You and I give off a certain scent. And this scent is perceived differently by different people. By some people, it's a sweet smell. To other believers, this smell that we give off, this aroma of Jesus Christ is a pleasing smell. It's pleasant. It's lovely. To other people, that same scent stinks. It smells awful. It's putrid. It's an odor. And you and I give off this odor. It's because of Jesus in us. And people smell us and it stinks they don't like it why do they not like it well it's really because of Jesus in us it's Jesus that they don't like and as Jesus is as we have Jesus in us and as we live for Jesus we give off an aroma to some it's well received to other it just flat stinks and jesus said it's an expectation if they persecuted the master they'll also also persecute the servants. Servants are not greater than masters. You and I should not expect an easier life than Jesus had just because we're his followers. There's an expectation. There's also a promise. There's a promise. Jesus says in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. It's a promise. Jesus promises success in the mission. Jesus says this mission will succeed. There's guaranteed success. I will build my church. Nothing can get in its way. Nothing can stop God's mission. An early church historian, a guy named uh, Tertullian, actually he's a theologian, he, he said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, the first 300 years of the church, Christians experience intense persecution. It wasn't until about 313 A.D. that Christianity is legalized in Rome. Prior to this time, for 300 years, the church experiences experiences intense persecution. And Tertullian says it's the church grows out of the blood of the martyrs. Men and women By the thousands give up their lives and a church is born. And Jesus says there's a promise that the gates of hell cannot stop the mission. For 300 years, right out of the gates, the church experiences persecution. Historians at the Center for the Study of Global Christianity estimate that by 300 A.D. there were already as many as 14 million Christians. How is this so? In the midst of intense persecution, within 300 years, 14 million followers. How? The promise. I am building my church, and the gates of hell can't stop it. Persecution can't stop it. There's a promise that the mission will succeed. There's a scene in the book of Revelation. It's in Revelation chapter 6. There's a scene where the souls of the martyrs approach Jesus, and they ask a question. Jesus, they say, oh, sovereign Lord, when are you going to enact justice? When are you going to to vindicate our blood? When are you going to make things right? And Jesus' response is, be patient. You've got to wait a little while longer because there's still people who must be beheaded and killed because of the faith. Wait a little while longer, but there's a promise. The mission will be accomplished. Blood will be vindicated. Jesus will make things right. It's not a responsibility that you and I have. I don't have to make things right in the midst of persecution. Jesus promises to do that. And there's also a promise that Jesus says in Matthew 28. He says, I am with you always. Always. I am with you always to the end of the age. When you're persecuted, when you're alone, when you feel like no one else is with you, Jesus says, I am with you. Remember that scene in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and and the response is, wait a minute, we threw in three people, who is the fourth person in the fire? Who is it? Who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus says, you're never alone. I am with you always The mission is guaranteed. I am building a church. The gates of hell can't stop it. There's an expectation. There's a promise. There's also a posture. There's a way that Jesus calls us to carry ourselves in the midst of persecution. Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says there's a posture that you and I are to carry, and that is a posture of being loving and kind and gracious toward our persecutors, not hateful, not vindictive. Jesus says, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. There's a, there's a posture that he wants us to carry. You know, you know what? When Polycarp was killed, and they described his face as being full of joy and full of grace, and after he was killed... The historian writes that the crowd noticed that there was a difference between the way the Christians died and the way the unbelievers died. There was something different about them. There was something about their posture, the way they carried themselves, their joy, their courage. Remember Stephen, when Stephen, that first martyr, was stoned? What is his response? Father, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. Would that be your prayer? Would that be my prayer? Lord, forgive them for stoning me. Forgive them for their persecution against you. I was talking to a friend of mine a few months ago, Don Cox. Don uh, lives in town. He's a coffee roaster. You've probably had his coffee at one time or another. And We were talking about mission of God and missions. And one of the things Don does, he coaches church planters in other countries. And he was telling me this story, and I think it so well illustrates this posture that God wants us to have that I want Don to just come and briefly share this story with you. Good
1: morning. Another page is being written in the history of the church that little or some will never hear. Uh, just recently, And and I have to speak in in vague terms because the area in which this individual works, I can't mention and it would be bad if I said his name because there are people out there that are hunting him down and they call themselves Christians and they actually turned my friend in because they believe that he's not doing church the right way. This got back to a group of individuals who do not like Christians in their country, so they kidnapped his mother and, their fa- and his father, and they beat his father, and they beat his mother. They let his mother go. She was in intensive care in the hospital. Praise God that she has gotten better. But they held on to his father to make a statement to say that what you're doing is wrong. Bruce, for the lack of a good name, is a tribal leader in this region where tribal leaders have a lot of power and they can do things quickly. And within this particular culture, it is actually okay. And they would be honored. More honor would be put upon them if Bruce decides just to pull the trigger, organize a tribal SWAT team, bust into the camp where they're holding the father, shoot all the people that harmed his father, and harmed his mother, and he would return back to the village in greater honor. So the other leaders from the other tribes who looked to Bruce said, we can get your father and mother tomorrow. We know where they're at. And Bruce looked at him, and he wouldn't use these words, but he said, we don't roll like that. We don't we're not going to handle this situation. He said, what we're going to do is pray. And that's what they did. Because Bruce and his parents, he he was a convert several years ago who led his parents to the Lord and his siblings to the Lord, understood that following Jesus meant that there are going to be times in which there will be persecution. And so that when the parents were kidnapped, it was not, like, wow, why did they do that? It was more like, well, it finally happened. So they started the negotiation process, and eventually what would happen, which was just recently, like 20 days ago, Bruce was going to see that his father would be released, and as he was going, he was stopped at a a police checkpoint and kidnapped. He was set up. And they took his computer, they took the translations that were with them, the, the thing about Bibles, as my brother shared, is so important, and they started to beat him. Now, this isn't the first time Bruce has been beaten. There was a time 24 months ago when they were having a, a meeting somewhat like this that the religious police came in, put him on his knees, and Bruce said that he was really scared when they came in with clubs, but that he knew it would be all right after they started beating him because there was a promise that the Lord was going to be there with him. The father was released. Bruce is still in captivity. We thought he was dead. We just got a word in an email last week saying that he's alive. They asked, how do we know it is true? And Bruce is a big guy. And they said, well, he eats a lot and that he likes to tell a lot of jokes. He's always laughing. And I find that completely amazing that in the midst of a situation that, that has death, the story hasn't unfolded yet, that here's a man that has an expectation, a promise, and a posture that's allowing him to be Jesus even to his captors. If you'd like to speak to me more about it after church, I'll be in the commons um, Please pray for Bruce, and and I want you to hear this. We're, we're gathered this morning, and it, and it kind of seems sad that, that people are being persecuted, but what you need to understand is those that are being persecuted are in joy because the joy of the Lord is being poured out in their hope knowing that the church is being grown and that it's just the way things happen in different parts of the world. So thank you. Thank you,
0: Don. You see that posture? This is not how we roll. This is not how we respond. There's there's an expectation, there's a promise, there's a posture, and there's a prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, I urge you that prayers be made for all people. I urge you, it's a command, urge you that prayers be made for all people, for kings And for those in positions of high authority, so that you and I may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. It's a prayer. We're we're commanded to pray. We're gathered here today to pray. Believers are gathered all around the world today to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted for the faith. So what's the prayer? What do we ask for? 1 Timothy 2 tells us, pray for all people. Pray especially for kings and those in high authorities. Now, I think it's easy for some Christians, especially those living in the United States of America, to hear that as a prayer that goes like this. God, please help our brothers and sisters not to be persecuted. The problem with a prayer like that is it is it negates the expectation. Because Jesus says... The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Sometimes I think we come at this First Timothy 2 verse and go, and our posture is something like this, God, keep us free from persecution so that we can live our peaceful lives, so that I can do what I want, so that I can pursue the American dream unhindered, so that I can have a comfortable life, so that I don't really have to engage much in my faith, so that I don't really have to be overly involved in the mission of God, unless, of course, it's fun, unless, of course, it entertains me, unless, of course, it's a program that I like, then I would be involved. You see, we kind of hear that prayer is, it'd be better around the world if persecution stopped because then everyone could relax. You know where the gospel is the strongest and theology of the church is the purest, It's in countries where there's intense persecution. And what's interesting is the is as the prayer requests come back to us from people in persecuted countries. The prayer request is not make persecution stop. The requests are help us to stand strong, help us to be firm to the end. Help us to overcome. Help us to face our captives, captors with joy and courage and peace. Give us opportunities to share the gospel with people who persecute us. Pray for their salvation and pray for us that we would be strong. There's an expectation, there's a promise, there's a posture, there's a prayer. Here's what I believe this prayer is talking about in 1 Timothy 2 that says pray for kings Pray for those in high positions. If you read the chapter in context, it's a missional passage. It's a passage about the mission of God going forward. Pray for kings. Pray for the emperor. Pray for those in high authority that they would would come to know Jesus. That they would experience joy and salvation. You know what I think is interesting? You know who's in charge? You know who the emperor is when Paul writes 1 Timothy 2? Nero. Nero. remember what Nero did to the Christians? He set them on fire such that historians say the Christians would often illuminate the night sky as Nero burned them. Paul says pray for Nero. Pray for the king. Pray for those in high positions because the gospel is meant to go everywhere. The gospel is for kings. The gospel is for those in authority. The gospel is for the poor. The gospel is for the ordinary person. Pray that the gospel would go forth. Pray that the mission would go forth. And this prayer that we would live peaceful and quiet lives that is really a prayer that the gospel could go unhindered, that we could be about our business. We don't purposefully want trouble. We want to move forward with the mission. Pray that that would be so. Pray for peace. That we could do what we're doing, in godliness and dignity. It's not really a prayer for us to be able to live comfortable lives. It's a prayer for the mission of the church to go forward as Jesus promised it would. So what do you do? How do you stay strong in the midst of persecution? How do you respond like someone like Polycarp? How do you respond with a smile on your face, with joy in your heart? In the book of Revelation, it it tells us the answer. It, It says they overcame him. They overcame, how? By the blood of the Lamb, By the word of their testimony, and here's the clincher, they did not love their lives even unto death. How much do you love your life? How much is your life worth? How important is your stuff to you? What would happen if your stuff was taken away? What would happen if your life was taken from you? Is that the end? Or is the promise true? and we trust Jesus, the mission will be accomplished. Jesus is building his church. Jesus is always with us. And scripture says that when the time comes, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. The Spirit in you will give you the joy and peace and grace that you need to respond appropriately. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you today, and, and in some ways I feel like a middle school kid at the school dance. It's awkward trying to pretend that we can even enter into what it's like to be persecuted. We've made an honest attempt. We've, we've made an effort to try to do more than just give lip service to this day. We've tried to put ourselves in their shoes as best we can Help us, Father, to to not take for granted the 20 different translations of the Bible that we have in our homes. Help us not to take for granted the freedom that we have in worship. God, most of all, help us not to be soft and flabby in our involvement in the mission. Help us to be full-fledged participants, not loving our lives even to death. It's in your name we pray. Amen. One of the things we want to do today, and it's a privilege to get to do this, is to come to the Lord's table together and take communion. And you realize our brothers and sisters around the world, when they come together, they count it a privilege to hear the word read, to sing, to take communion together. It's a a joy, it's a privilege, it's an act of worship. And the way we want to do this today, I'm going to give a little bit of instruction. We've got some tables set up at various places around the room. And we're going to have some elders and some ushers at those tables to help give you bread and, and the juice. And, and just a couple of thoughts on this. We're not going to put a big map up that tells you how to do it. You're all intelligent people. You can figure it out. Just look around. There's, there's stuff everywhere where you can go and celebrate the death Of Jesus Christ and His blood shed for us. You you can celebrate. There's a table here, back there. Uh, Maybe we don't need the extreme corners because I think, but, but do whatever. If there's people there giving it out, you can go there. Figure it out. Just however you need to, there's a place to go. Now, a couple of other things. We've not passed around an offering plate today. We have some baskets near the communion tables. And so we would ask you as an act of worship, As you go to take communion, that you would bring your offering, put it in that basket. And we have one more thing for you. There's also a bag of rice. And in that bag of rice is a little card, a prayer card. We've got one bag of rice per family. You know, most of the people in the world today, they're not going to go to Mountain House or Golden Corral or Black Cat or wherever for lunch. They're going to go home and they're going to eat rice. So we're giving you a little bag of rice. You can do with it what you want. But it's meant to be a reminder to you that our brothers and sisters in Christ are living in extreme conditions. There's a card in there with specific things to pray for. So take one per family and utilize that today to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Now as we go to the communion tables, just want to remind you that this is something that's intended for believers. This is saying that you are a part of of the family of God. If you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, there's no judgment from us. Uh, you, can, you can stay seated. You can walk and journey and get a certainly get a prayer card to pray this afternoon. This is a celebration for the community of faith to come to the table together. And just one more thought as we do this. Our elders want to be able to say something to you at the table. They want to be able to say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. They want to say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. There's not a rush. We've got time. Sometimes it feels like we're, we're just rushing through the line. Take time. Take time to stop and listen. Let the elders tell you. Let them say, this is the body of Christ, Steve, broken for you. This is his blood, Peter, shed for you. Give them time to say that. We're going to sing two songs. And during these songs... Whenever you'd like, you can move to one of the stations, take communion, take time to listen. If you need some assistance, maybe just signal someone around you that you need help getting to the tables, or they could even bring back to you, to your seat, some bread and some juice. Again, let's pray together. Father, what a privilege to be called a Christian, and what a privilege to be able for our brothers and sisters around the world to suffer for your sake. You say in your word, blessed are you when men persecute you. This is a blessing. So now we sing to you, we come to the table, celebrating the work of Christ, his death on the cross for us, and pray that you would strengthen our faith. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.